Hi, and welcome to Bread. John's Gospel features seven sayings of Jesus which begin with I am. And they serve a singular purpose, to emphatically reveal Jesus' identity as the Son of God. This is a series about these saints. They confront us with the real Jesus and they invite us to meet with him. Because the Christian faith is not primarily a doctrine to believe or a moral code to follow or even an experience to participate in. It is a person to meet. And our hope is that you would meet the living Jesus. Enjoy. Uh, my name is Tavia. If we haven't met, I'm one of the worship leaders here at Bread. We are nearing the end of our I Am series, which we've been in for several weeks. Um, today we're looking at the final I Am statement of Jesus, which is, I am the true vine. We're a little bit out of order because we still have one week left in the series, but chronologically, this is the last I Am statement that Jesus gives before he goes to the cross. So to set the scene, Jesus and his disciples have just had their last meal together. By the end of the night, they will have, he will have been betrayed or abandoned by most of his close friends. There's tons of plot points that haven't been resolved. There's tension in the air. And as they begin moving towards the garden where everything is about to go down, Jesus speaks these words. Amanda's going to read for us John 15, 1 through 13. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This, this is to my Father's glory, that you, be, you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no, has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Yeah, thank you, Amanda. All right, so the entire book of John, I love it. It's so rich and poetic. 
And it's a totally different style of writing too than any of the other gospels. So if you're looking for somewhere to start in the Bible and you want something that's just saturated in Jesus, I recommend the book of John. It's actually really amazing that we have so much of his life and words written down because in this society at that time, literacy was like two to 3%. So most of history and education was passed down through oral tradition. The vast majority of people worked in agriculture as well. So these spoken teachings using land and food and farming metaphors would have been very accessible and comfortable for his listeners. And it's more than just a general understanding. This analogy of a vine was specifically personal to Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, the vine was often used to refer to Israel itself. Here's a few examples. In Genesis 49, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring. Psalm 80, you transplanted a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. Hosea 10, Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. And there's so many more. The vast majority of them are pretty brutal, honestly. They go on to talk about how Israel had failed to be God's light to the surrounding nations. They had failed to bear fruit. So in this very first phrase, by Jesus saying, I am the true vine, Jesus is presenting himself as the fulfillment of the law, the one their prophets foretold who would live out the purposes of God. He's not just saying, I'm like a vine, you're like branches. He's saying, I am the one you've been waiting for who will bring glory and blessing and salvation to Israel, light and hope to the world. I am the Messiah. Every gospel writer has their own way of presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecies, and these seven I am statements are one of John's methods. Another thing that John uses to point to Jesus as the Messiah is his use of a certain word. It's a word that he repeats Throughout this passage we just read, it's probably, if I had to guess, his favorite word other than love. He uses it so much. And he guesses what it was. Did you notice? Abide. Or in our translation, I think we read remain. Yeah. Um, it can be translated either way. I recently ran a poll on Instagram to find the best and worst word in the English language. The criteria was the sound of the word, how good or bad it feels to say, and of course the meaning of the word as well. Um, I accidentally used the word moist in a story, and then I just like cringed at myself, and I was like, I'm so sorry, that's the worst word ever. And apparently my corner of Instagram is very passionate about this topic, and they disagreed with me. They said moist is not the worst word, and I said, well, okay, prove it. So we did a poll. Um, we found out, I was like debating whether or not this is appropriate to say in church. It, it's just a little gross. So the, the worst word we decided was pustule. Give it a try if you want. The best word though won by a landslide. It was bioluminescence. Beautiful, yeah. <laughs> I was secretly hoping that somebody in the crowd would say bioluminescence, like this gentle echo. But if John was involved today, I think he would have voted for this word 
abide. Out of the 112 times that abide is used in the New Testament, 40 of them are in the Gospel of John. And 26 more of them are in these tiny little letters he wrote for 2nd and 3rd John. So if you're good at math, that's exactly half just by John. One of, that's one of the things that makes the Gospel of John so lovely and easy to read. It's his use of repetition. He has themes and phrases that he comes back to over and over. It's like he's building a world for us out of these images. The word abide means to continue, to stay, to dwell, to be present, to not leave, to endure, to remain as one is. So how is it connected to prophecy? Throughout the Old Testament, God had promised to abide, to dwell with his people. He wouldn't be a distant, far-off deity demanding human sacrifice like the gods of the other nations around them. His nature was love, and he would make his love known to them. To dwell with his people was part of his character, and it was a hope that Israel clung to throughout their history. Exodus 29 they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. Ezekiel 37, my dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. The New Testament Jews anticipated this as a characteristic of the coming Christ, that their oppression would soon be over, and that this new kingdom would abide, would endure forever. As Jesus started to talk about his coming death, you can imagine they were a little confused. We see them going, hold on a second. You're supposed to establish an everlasting kingdom. You leaving isn't really part of the deal. In John 12, they say, <clears throat> we have heard from the law that the Christ abides forever. So how can you say that the son of man will be lifted up, referring to his death? They were looking for him to prove to them that he was the one who had been prophesied. And to their credit, it is pretty difficult to establish an enduring kingdom if you're not there. This matters to Jesus as well because he spends a large chunk of his last moments here on earth describing what this abiding relationship will look like. It was just much different than what they were expecting. Jesus didn't come as a military leader who would free them from Roman oppression and reestablish their power. He came as God in flesh to free them from the oppression of sin and death. And no longer would his presence be mediated through rituals and priests and kings and prophets. Now the spirit of Jesus would be with anyone who wants it. And no longer would his presence be limited to Israel. Now it will be available to the entire world. And not only would God dwell with the whole world, the whole world would be invited to dwell with God. Jesus describes this relationship as a mutual circular movement between us, him, and the Father. 
Check this out, as we just read. It says, remain in me as I also remain in you. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. Love is the most complete when it's both given and received. And we don't jumpstart God's love with our obedience. His love is ongoing. The choice we have is whether or not to abide, to soak, to dwell in it. I think I mentioned last time that uh, I'm a terrible reader. My book consumption is all thanks to Audible. Um, but I honestly, I go through like hours and hours of books a day. My friend Nico introduced me to this uh, fantasy book series where the books are like 40 to 50 hours long a piece. I'm already on the second one and it's been like a month. I was just telling him the other day though, it's like these books have become my companion, like the characters have become my friends and even when I'm not listening to it, I think about what's gonna happen and like where's it gonna go from here. I put it on in my car while I'm cooking and cleaning. Anyone who's ever binged a TV show understands this feeling of being soaked in the world of it, right? The soundtrack, the tone, the essence of it lingers with you even after you finish. That's why I can't, I can't watch anything like even remotely scary, especially at night, but anytime, because I can't shake the feeling and I, I just won't sleep. But it's that idea of letting the essence of God, his peace, joy, love, power, infuse the way that we live in the world. This is the call. So what is that line about pruning? Uh, first and very importantly, the word for prune also means cleanse, which I think helps these two sentences make a little bit more sense back to back, where it says, every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, cleanses so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. There's a purifying aspect to God's presence. He's invested in our growth, the way a gardener cuts back plants to allow for new growth. Big question. Does this mean that God brings trials into good people's lives to make them better people? I mean, that's definitely not a foreign concept, right? That's why we have sayings like, no good deed goes unpunished, nice guys always finish last, or what's that one? Um, God gives his toughest battles to his strongest warriors or something like that. You might have heard that type of theology from Christian leaders or just well-meaning people who don't know what to say when they're faced with grief. But I don't believe that that aligns with who God shows himself to be over and over again. And I don't think that that's what this verse is trying to say either. I'm not going to try to give a full theology of suffering. One, because we don't have time. Two, because I, I just don't think there are straightforward answers to that question. But what I will say, I think something we can all agree on, is that no one is exempt from suffering. And Jesus willingly chose to step into that experience with us. Jesus took this idea of God dwelling with Israel and he lived it all the way out. 
Whatever you accuse him of, you can't accuse him of not understanding pain. And we know that God uses everything in our lives, good and bad, to help us grow. A few chapters back in John 10, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. God's goal is always redemption and love and joy, and we can trust him to care for us the way a gardener cares for his garden. After the service today, we're um, having a family barbecue in our little garden out here. Um, a couple months ago, Jake uh, helped the kids plant sunflowers and peppers and tomatoes and herbs, and now they get to watch their garden produce food and flowers, and they get to learn about how to care for this little tiny piece of land. But it takes patience and commitment. Jake comes by every week to check on everything and make sure it has enough water and the weeds aren't too crazy. But the point is that pruning and cleansing is part of the way that God cares for us. Something I'd missed until studying this passage this week is how the phrase, you are already clean, because of this word that I've spoken to you, it connects to a conversation Jesus had with his disciples a few hours earlier. When Jesus starts washing their feet before the Last Supper, Peter puts up a fight. He says, Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? Jesus said, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, says Peter, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well, then, Lord, Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, chill. <laughs> Those who've had a bath need only wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean. Sound familiar? You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. When he was washing their feet, he told them that they had to be washed in order to be part of his kingdom. Peter, the overachiever, immediately is like, all right, tell me what I gotta do. Dunk my head, dunk my hands, give me the extra credit, I'm in. Jesus is like, listen, you're already clean, I did the work, you've had a bath, you've lived in my presence and my teaching. The cleaning that happens from here is just like washing your feet after traveling in sandals. The call is to come close, to spend time with him, let him refine you, convict you, challenge you, and refresh you so that you continue to grow and produ produce the type of fruit that lasts. So let's talk about bearing fruit. Sometimes in this little subculture of Christianity, I think we can get into sacrifice competitions. Like we're playing the Hunger Games, but it's like who can be the nicest? Who's serving the most? Who's giving the most? Who's evangelizing the most? And hopefully it's obvious, but that's not what bearing fruit means. It's more than morality or self-actualization. We memorize the fruits of the Spirit as kids, but then that becomes like a list of things to achieve, to strive for. The whole point is that when we spend time with Christ, we become like him. It's the Father, Son, Spirit infusing his loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlled nature 
into us. The way a vine infuses its branches. Fruit trees bear fruit, grapevines bear grapes. It's the most natural thing that happens when branches are connected to their source. It's simply alignment. So the question that you may or may not want me to ask, how much fruit do you see in your life? Maybe a better question is, how much fruit do the people closest to you experience from your life? Because it's really easy to think of yourself as a patient person if you're the only person that you're waiting on. <laughs> it's really easy to see yourself as selfless if there's no one else to prioritize. The whole process of growth is meant to be done in community. In fact, it's the only way. And because of that, it's messy and we fail over and over, but stay. Resist the temptation to isolate yourself from people or from God. Remain where the life is. Okay, there's this one phrase, though, that rubs still when I read it because it kind of feels conditional. I don't know if you noticed this, but when he says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. That word commands is a hard one, especially if you, like me, grew up in church and were very happy to follow all of the rules all of your life. When I say that I was a rule follower, <laughs> I mean truly. Like, if you ask my mom to tell you uh, stories of my misbehavior as a child, almost guaranteed she'll tell one of two stories. The first one is when I lied about eating too many Flintstones vitamins. That is not a joke, that happened. And then I cried because I felt so bad for lying about it. The other story, and she tells these to me all the time, this is why I know. The other story is uh, we had this little tiny cherry tree that we'd been growing for like months and months. We finally got one cherry and we were really excited to eat it. And then they came out one day and found that someone had eaten the cherry before anyone else got up that morning. And she asked me and I of course said, I'm sorry, it was me. But honestly, like, that was kind of the range of my misbehavior as a child. <laughs> like, I just honestly, I didn't see the point in challenging the rules if they made sense to me. And to this day, if a rule makes sense, I'll probably follow it. If you can convince me that your way of doing something is better than mine, I will probably change. The key word there, though, is if you can convince me. That's the hard part. Right, Ed? <laughs> so as you can imagine, I've had some work to do as an adult, untying all of these very beautifully crafted knots of perfectionism and pride. If you give me a prerequisite to love, I turn right into Peter. I'm gonna sit in the front row of that class, I'm gonna do the homework on time, and I'm gonna do the extra credit. That perfectionist mindset makes it very difficult to understand the concept of grace. It wants us to try to earn the love of God and that can bleed into the way that we give or withhold love from others as well. I've done it. I'm sure you've done it. Trying to earn God's love is like believing that the branch gets the life from the vine because it bears fruit, rather than the branch bearing fruit because it gets the life. As Jesus puts it, apart from me, you can do nothing. 
On the other end, some of us fully reject perfectionism. We've gone as far as possible the other way to say that God doesn't actually care at all what we do or say. And we live in a culture that affirms that, right? Our greatest authority is literally our freedom. Go America. We don't like the idea of anyone expecting us to obey their commands, especially God. And yet Jesus says here that submitting to his teachings is the way that we abide in his love. So how do we reconcile that? And what are his commands? First, I think when we come across language about submission to God, we have to remember that God's goal in everything is redemption of people, of heaven, and of earth, the bringing of all things back into perfect harmony. He's not an insecure, manipulative tyrant demanding our obedience. He's a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children. We should be careful to not confuse our feelings about submitting to flawed people with submitting to the ultimate source of love. Jesus says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. He wants us to have joy. The result of following his commands is joy. We love joy. We want more joy. But I'm still stressing out a little bit, Jesus. Like, tell me what your command is. <laughs> Next verse. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Huh. Is that really it? Like, there must be more things, right? Like, read your Bible every day, go to church, don't sleep with your girlfriend, don't drink or smoke or watch R-rated movies, don't be gay, don't like rap music, don't say anything bad about Taylor Swift ever. <laughs> or recently, don't say anything good about Timothy Chalamet. In his new relationship. The point is, there's rules, right? Like, maybe we're missing something. So let's look at Jesus' most expansive teaching on obedience, the Sermon on the Mount, and how to live according to his kingdom. Be reconciled to each other. Don't objectify each other. Don't murder each other. Keep your word. Be humble. Be merciful. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Bless those that curse you. Don't hoard wealth. Don't show off your spirituality. Don't make other people feel small. Don't judge. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Forgive one another. Take care of the poor. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Freely give. Kind of sounds like love each other. It's so crazy simple. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. If you love one another, you will abide in my love. You want to experience more Jesus? Go start really listening to your friends. Go pay for someone's coffee. Go look that unhoused person in the eye and treat them with respect. All this secondary stuff, these rules we've made up, they're not the way to Jesus. If you feel like the Holy Spirit is convicting you of what type of media you consume or the type of language you use, it's probably less about those actions condemning you to hell 
and more about those things keeping you from loving God and loving someone else. Jesus isn't saying that everyone needs to do what he says in order to be loved by God. He's saying, if you want to abide in, dwell in, have your life defined by the kind of love that I've given you, then do as I do. There's a beautiful quote from the Buddhist tradition that says, if you like a flower, you simply pluck it. But if you love a flower, you water it daily. Love isn't plucking a flower and admiring it for a few days before it wilts, or in my case, until the stems get all moldy and the water at the bottom is all gray. It's the watering of the flower where it grows, which not only gives us its beauty, but remains and thrives and pollinates and gives back to the ecosystem. He's designed the whole world to work this way. Everything from the tomato plants in that garden outside to the smallest atom, to the galaxy we float around in. Jesus says it himself, all the law and the prophets are summed up in these two things. Love the Lord your God and love one another. We can do lots of things in service for God. Volunteering for kids, helping with parking and coffee and worship, leading a small group, and those things are so beautiful and so important for the church and such a good practice of putting others before ourselves, but it has to come from a heart that knows the love of God. This is the lifelong pursuit of being a Christian. It's not something you achieve one time or experience once. It's the entire journey of finding and living out faith. I'm gonna have the band come back up. I'm gonna sing a song. I wanna encourage you to spend time with Jesus this week in his word, in prayer, and in community. Welcome his presence into your life on the daily, every minute, every second. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you every hour. I need you. Let's stand and sing.